There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. This is this is here's the deal. We're right now in what the highest stadium, the highest, the highest college football college stadium, stadium in the, the United hi- States of America. Yeah. So if you've ever wondered, if you've ever been laying in bed at night wondering what the highest altitude college football stadium is in America, which I was talking about that with my wife last night, um, it's this one, seventy two hundred and twenty feet. War Memorial, Memorial Stadium. Stadium. And we're actually in a, if there was a game going on, we'd look out the window and see it. We're in like a, no, I, I, I want to call it a press box. It's the athletic director's box. The VIP suite. It's his luxury yeah. box, yeah. His luxury box. Yep. I'm here with, introduce yourselves. How much, now, how, how much can you guys say like what you do for a living? <laughs> I mean, are you like? I don't know. Are you here? But I mean, are you here in your official? Like, can you, you talk to us in yeah. your official capacity? Both. Well, probably. You know, as long as it doesn't. Is this like your work account or your Gmail account? This is my work account. Yeah, oh, okay. this is uh, it's my Gmail account. It's your Gmail. Yeah. Account. <laughs> See, I, I'm that's uh, my qualifier. Yeah, I'm Nephi Cole. I'm, I'm a policy advisor. Okay, for, that's what I meant right. for the governor. Why I'm Governor Matt Mead, and uh, I've worked work, working for him for about four years, and I do natural resource policy. I came on to his team doing energy um, work, and I do uh, 
Right now my main deal is water, but interestingly enough, I also do, uh, I do water, I do firearms, uh, refugees, international trade. I think I'm missing How, how did refugees land on your plate? That's a really long story. You guys story. like out like poker cards? Yeah, that's, Two of them showed up last week. <laughs> we, well, uh, just short, short stories. Is, well, I mean, we do not have a uh, refugee resettlement program, so we'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's just not a whole lot of workloads there. Yeah. Dave. Yeah. Uh, David Wilms. I'm a policy advisor as well for the governor. I'm basically, if it's got uh, hooves or claws, or pause, I'm working on it uh, for him. Wildlife, other natural resource issues uh, for the governor, um, and been doing that for about a year. Uh, and you went to regular college and law school here? I did. This is my alma mater. I did uh, undergrad in wildlife management and uh, environment natural resources, and got my law degree here as well. And then uh, you worked for Fish and Wildlife. I always want to call it Fish and Game, but what, you worked for the department here too, right? Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, I, I, I was uh, their attorney uh, for oh, several years. Oh, I see. I was with the Attorney General's office assigned to represent the uh, Game and Fish Department. So, yeah. You got involved in a lot of that. Yeah, so did a lot of their work. I don't know why. I, I've talked about this many times. I've even talked about it in this year podcast. The name, you guys are down with who Laramie was. Jacques de la Rémy. Yeah, the guy that yeah. Yeah, yeah. spelled his name, though, L-A, like La, and then Rami, and got a lot of stuff named after him for, like, in eight, he was a trapper out here. In 1820, he went off to go trap the headwaters of the Laramie. 1821, doesn't show up at the rendezvous. Never find his body. There's all kinds of rumors about what happened to him. And winds up with half the state named after him. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Laramie Peak, Laramie River, Town of Laramie, Laramie This yeah. radically <laughs> he's, changed he's the spelling. He's got his own yeah. geologic episode. He's got the Laramide orogeny. <laughs> Dude. I mean, yeah. this guy's, he's If it. he would have lived, he would have had like, he could have taken, you know, people out and been like in this. And he but for a dude, they don't even know what happened to him. He didn't even know he had a river named after him. No. Yeah. If he lived, nothing would have been named after him. It's like being an artist, right? It might be. Yeah. It could be true. <laughs> you got to die to become famous. Before we get into what we're talking about, I want to talk about something that just struck me as so funny, man. I was uh, reading up on collapsible 22s, and, I, and yesterday I took, my, I took my daughter to her ballet class, and it, it wasn't long enough that you'd go and actually get something done you know, so I just kind of waited for her. And while doing it, I fell into one of those internet traps where I was just reading up on Classable 22s, and then I wound up on a, on a survivalist website. And what's interesting is this guy gets into what I now think of as the ecology of apocalypse. And what he's, what he's talking about was he's arguing what's the best caliber for a post-apocalyptic firearm. And he's like, you got your commando guys, you got your ninja guys, but I'm going to give you the straight dope on what's up with the post-apocalyptic situation. He's like a 22 because, you know, you're going to have a lot of flooding and whatnot, he's saying. And when that happens, it tends to drive vermin out. This guy's so wrong. So he's like, you're going to be dealing with a lot of rats and wild dogs. And the 22, you see, is a economical way to deal with all that. And he goes, and the deer population is only going to last a year. At which point, we're just going to be eating muskrats and whatnot. So you're not even going to need yeah. a big gun. This guy's out of his... <laughs> he, had, he had the whole deal 
like the and I realize that there's like a good field of inquiry would be the ecology of the post apocalypse. You could carry a lot of that stuff. You know, <laughs> you're talking <laughs> carry a lot of thirty odd sixes. You're, you're you know? in the wrong state talking to the wrong guys on that argument. Because I got to tell you, in Wyoming, we just get up and go to work. Yeah, yeah, we're just well, gonna get up and go to work. That was gonna be my brilliant segue. Is um. Yeah, there's the ecology and the and the wildlife of the hypothetical post-apocalyptic future, and then there's the actual wildlife uh, that's here right now that we deal with. And you guys already pointed out you work for the governor. I'll point out you guys, governor has a, as far as approval ratings go, has a like a pretty good, like an admirable approval rating. Yeah, that's right. Where he's often put in the top tier of. Of governors. Like, usually if 50% of the people like you, are doing really good. But six, I don't know, I was looking, 67%? Yeah, he's one of the, to- I mean, they, they have different people publish top tens, and he's always in the top five. He's, uh, he is, of course, number one. You know, if there's, if it's messed up somewhere and they put somebody else first, I'm sure that's a clerical error they can take care of, because our exactly. guy is number one. He's number uh, one. No, but he's an, he's an amazing governor. He's a, he, he's smart, he's pragmatic, he's, uh, intelligent he's a really easy guy to work for and i know dave's just like me um you know some he uh he tapped me from the industry i was in and asked me to come join his team and i i got to think about it for a long time and i got to you know to to look at him and how he does business and it's been uh, he's just a really easy guy to work for and it's a it truly is a privilege i mean he's a fantastic individual what one of the things i think is enviable about being in the position you guys are in in a state like this is you have uh like a, I mentioned this to you on email. You have sort of an intact suite of megafauna. Like you guys have, you're one of the few states, really anywhere that has its, um, that has specimens of all of your large animals. Pretty much everything that's all here of, before. All of the today. pre-contact large males. Maybe not in the abundances, but very few states are able to really say that. Because you, I mean, you have a dozen. Like if you count a coyote and bigger as a large mammal, you guys got about a dozen large mammals, it, at least, yeah. Um, so a big part of your job is that you got people who actually sit around thinking about wildlife on a state level, and I think a lot of state. I mean, it, it always comes up. I mean, it's like a huge part of the work here. Yeah, I mean, trying to keep the people happy while also doing a responsible job of managing a menagerie of wildlife has a lot of complications this is a diagram i do want to get back to i I do want to talk about what what we're going to talk about we're talking about wildlife management issues um but do you want do you want to have do you want to um take to task the the you we talked about stream access on a previous episode you did and you and you felt that we were playing a little fast and loose with a couple definitions yeah, what, do you care? Do, do you? Does it matter enough that you'd want to say like, "Here's where I think you were wrong"? No, you bet. I'd be happy to. So, you know, I don't know if you want to go there now. And, no, I, I mean, you, if you can do it in a, in a yeah, quick so, way, if sure. you can say, "Let me just let me break it down. Let me just re- refresh everyone's memory." So, in case you didn't listen to this, we did an episode about stream access law, and and the the and and doing that. Basically, that comes down to um, whether you and your state or where you hang out, whether you're allowed to float down a river. Okay, so in some states, you're allowed to stay below high water mark in your river, and that means you can, as long as you can get in the water to fish, you can wade up and down the river and you're cool. Um, a stream gets small enough to where you're not allowed to do that anymore, 
you'd never go, you know, wading up into private property in a drainage ditch, for instance. Like just the fact that it's water doesn't mean it's public access. So there's all these definitions that govern what is what's known as a navigable stretch of water. And there's some of these, and some of the definitions are so difficult in dealing with it for the last hundred years. People have been arguing about it in courts, like. Um, does said river warrant public access? You know, like, should you be allowed to float it? Should you be allowed to wade in it, even though you don't have permission from landowners who are on the riverbanks? Did a whole thing about that. And afterward, Nephi very respectfully said that, uh, pointed out some errors in... Yeah, just, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky issue because, I mean, and I, and I think what I mentioned is, you know, the way you guys are using it, you're probably fine because, you know, when you're talking about navigable waters as... You know, if you're saying navigable water is something I can put a boat in and quote and really navigate, then you know you're fine. But the challenge is, you know, since you know 1970s, there's been uh, the term navigable waters is used almost interchangeably with the term, you know, waters of the United States or waters of the U.S. Or now people are saying WOTUS. So if you've never, if you haven't heard that before, um, I saw you use that. I'm familiar with POTUS. Yeah, but not WOTUS. Well, POTUS is largely responsible for where we're at with WOTUS right now. <laughs> and uh, so, waters of the United States, when the Clean Water Act, you know, 1972, there's there's a, there's a suite of just seminal, you know, foundational, important, you know, environmental legislation that came out all around the same, you know, 10, 20 year period when our nation really had an awakening. And that includes the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act. Uh, the you know, protections that are so, you know, we talk about land and water conservation fund and all these acts, there's, you know, what you had is this, this bipartisan effort where everybody came together and said, you know what, these things are bigger than me. They're bigger than my issue. They're bigger than just one state. Let's work together on these issues. And, uh, you know, that's, so you had this, this passage of all these acts. And over time, there's been some significant mission creep in some of these. And the Clean Water Act's definition of waters of the U.S. definitely falls into that, you know, ground where it started out, you know, protecting the chemical, physical, biological integrity of the waters of the United States. And, you know, it was largely at the beginning navigable waters. And, you know, and few people are going to argue that. And that's because a navigable water, the Clean Water Act, it's all, it's hitched up to the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. Okay. So the so what lets it work? What gives it its authority to go into an area that you know, you know, some would argue federalism should keep the federal government out of and should be states' rights is that those streams you can use them for commerce because you can get your boat in that stream and go across the line and you're you know doing interstate that. commerce. You bet. And so what happened is over time you had things you know you had some things like in two, that before two thousand one it had gone as far as having a, a, a rule called the, called the migratory bird rule right which said if a migratory bird flies across state lines and can land in that puddle, no matter where that puddle is at, well, now that's part of interstate commerce, therefore regulated by the federal government. Is that right? You bet. And the Supreme Court struck that down in 2001, and i got to be really careful about uh, Counselor Dave here. The uh, attorney is going to, you know, when, he, when he's, you know. Hold up. You mean to say, so hold, back up, because I find yeah. this real hard to believe. You're saying that someone proposed. And from a well, purely altruistic, regulated. Yeah, I wish they would have won from a purely altruistic <laughs> way, because uh, that'd be real good for me as a duck hunter. But um, you're saying this, uh, but I would have a real hard time justifying that to a lot of people. You're saying that, that it was an idea that if a duck can land in it, it's federal property. 
uh, not federal they property. Can't be that. It's but it's regulated by them, so it's not like it's their pond. Yeah, but it Let's falls under their you, jurisdiction. You want to do something with that pond, you're going to ask them for a permit. You're going to come and say, Mother, may I? And if you don't, you're going to get a $30,000 a day fine, you know, just yeah. a fat fine. On, on, and that's, you know, and so that was challenged, and, uh, and the court sent it back and said, you know, I don't think so. That's your, you're overreaching. And then there were a couple more decisions that occurred um, in around 2006 that I'm not going to go into details. I'm boring you with Swank and Rapanos. But those decisions, the same thing, basic thing happened. You had um, people challenging it and said, you know, you've gone too far. And this is, you know, you've taken too much authority. You know, you've gone past the limits of what the Commerce Clause is, should be allowing you to do within the Clean Water Act. And, uh, and they, the agencies were instructed to go back and, and kind of fix this issue and, find, and, redef- and, and get define what the waters of the United States are, to get a definition of waters of the U.S., and uh, the famous decision that kind of pushed everybody back that way, you know, the, the, the opinion that everybody, that everything hinges on was Justice uh, Kennedy, who used the term, excuse me, significant nexus. And he said, basically, look, if you want this to attach to the Clean Water Act, basically, there has to be a connection and it has to be significant. You can't just have, you know, these grab things from wherever. It has to be connection, has to be significant. And the reason he's pivotal is because four members of the court said we give, you know, Army Corps and EPA can have jurisdiction of any waters they want. Four members of the court said these guys are way out of bounds. If it's not like right on navigable water, they shouldn't have it. So Kennedy said, well, you know, if it's a significant nexus, then but now define significant nexus. And so we've been in this kind of gray area defining, you know, what is a water of the U.S., which again people use interchangeably with, you know, navigable waters where there's been a lot of discretion, people have been trying to figure out, well, what is it really? Yeah, but the, when we were, the argue, the discussion we had was, we never even talked about what the feds say. We talked about how the different states define it. And that's, and honestly, that's that's a different challenge. You yeah, because like in Montana, which is one of the states we discussed, they define it as, was it used for commerce? Yep, and that's, again, that's where I say, like, where you guys are using it, the way you're using it, you're probably fine. But, you know, for a lot of the people who are out there, when they hear navigable waters, and they think that that's a settled question, on the national scale, it, you know, especially with the correlation, it's really not a settled question. And so right now, it's actually in the courts right now, you know, trying to, you know, the, the agencies, basically what happened is EPA and Army Corps, they rolled out a, uh, a proposal where they said anything with a bed bank and an ordinary high watermark waters of the U.S., Anything with a bed bank and an ordinary high water. Yeah, because you sent me a picture of something I wouldn't even call yeah. a stream. And then that, that's the issue. It doesn't even have to have water in it. It's anything with a bed bank and ordinary high water mark. So anything that shows sorting, anything that, you know, so basically, you know, pick a draw, you know, and if there's potential to have a storm event and it's going to have water going down that draw, you know, going into a navigable water, they think that that should be water and in the U.S. That's a national, you're saying that's a national policy? National yeah, it's a, and it's 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 not being implemented now because the courts. So there were multiple efforts. Thirty-two states challenged this thing and said you've overstepped your bounds. And so in the there's 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 two stays on. One of them within a district court, which includes you know thirteen states, including Wyoming, and then one of them at a federal level, it's the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, where it's also a stay. And what the stay means is that the states came in to the judges and argued and said. These guys overstepped, and then they looked at the they looked at the evidence in front of them right now, and they said, you know, you can't let them 
implement this now because it's going to harm us. And the court said that there's a preponderance of likelihood that the states are going to win on the merits. And so this still has to play out. It's going to play out in the circuit court. It's going to probably go to the Supreme Court. Um, from my perspective, you know, and, and, it, and it's dicey. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging issue. And the, the unfortunate part about it, kind of trying to come back around to all these environmental laws that are so foundational and important, is because we didn't have to be there. You know, there were some proposals for how you could define, you know, because there, there's a, the state of Wyoming protects all waters to a degree higher than what the Clean Water Act does. You know, if there's water on the ground in the state of Wyoming, we protect that water. And, you know, you dump your cup over. You know, we're going to protect that water. We have water quality standards for that. But the challenge is, when, from my perspective, that when you have that influence coming in there, that, that, that federal influence, um, it makes it really hard to be champions of, of, of doing the right thing when somebody comes in and tries to take it all away from you, from, a, you know, from that level. And really, that's what we feel happened with the Clean Water Act. We, you know, we can take care of these waters. We know how to do that. Montana can take care of theirs. They know how to do that. You know, these, these small streams, these, these other areas, you know, we're good at, you know, come to Wyoming. Come see, uh, come see our state. You're going to agree. We're pretty pristine. We do a good job. So do you guys feel, this is something we emailed about earlier when we were talking about this, and I want to allow you to give voice to this, but you feel that, uh, that that is a general theme in the American West, in the U.S.? Kind of this, this uh, yeah, you know. I mean, as far as, as far as when it comes to natural resources management and wildlife, do you feel that there is a, a tug of war going on? between states and the, and the federal government. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Where do you do I mean, do you feel that that's particularly true in the West or around the whole country? So, I, I, I mean, I think it's more Western-based, and part of it is because you have all your public lands in the West. Yeah. So you have, you have your you have federal land ownership, uh, federal land management decisions. Then you have wildlife, and the, and the states claim ownership of the wildlife, right, and trying to manage the wildlife. And so you have inherent conflicts between the states and the federal government in the West. Um, I, I'm sure it's a... I'm sure they have issues in the East as well, uh, but it's, I think it's probably more pronounced uh, in the West, at least on the wildlife issues, because of those, the public land interface with uh, wildlife management. Yeah, because it gives them something to have jurisdiction Absolutely. over. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, because I think water is esoteric, and it's, it might be even a hard thing to discuss. Now, he is going to go to law school now after that, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> it was good? Yeah, was, I thought it, yeah. It was good, but I want to make I make a mean pizza. As long as you keep the cheese on top, it's way easier than law school. So, I want to do that same thing, but tell like like I fell tell me the story. The <laughs> <laughs> Explain it in terms of wolves, because people love wolves. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Explain like the state federal dispute. All right. In terms of wolves, in like, wolves, I'm going to talk wolves. That's all I'm going to. And I might talk bears a little bit. <laughs> no, I want to talk, <laughs> uh, but. But for sure, wolf. Okay, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear in terms of wolves and bears. Yeah. All right. So wolves, nineteen ninety four. I might do some devil's advocacy. No, on do you, it do just it. to make sure we get the whole point out. That's it's fine. a complicated thing. It is for sure. So history of wolves in Wyoming, nineteen ninety four, zero. There were zero wolves in the state of Wyoming, nineteen ninety four. Nineteen ninety five, wolves are are introduced or reintroduced, depending on who you talk to. Uh, depends. Yeah. You know, I think it's safe to say reintroduced. It depends on who you talk to. We can oh, say reintroduced. Oh, back, we can back say- up. Back up. Is someone saying that? Is someone proposing that 
wolves had migrated down from Canada? Look, no, no what you have is you have two two trains of thought, and you have some folks that said, well, the wolves that they brought in from Canada are, are different than the wolves that were in Wyoming before. And, which oh, is you why say they're, saying it, they're they debating were, introduced or reintroduced. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah. so that, a different topic. Different I've heard day. all that. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So, Th- now, I, I, all right. All right, so yeah, that's a that's a great story, a great debate that they brought it. down super wolves. <laughs> yeah, okay. that that's for another. And day, we've though, even right? met a guy. We met a guy who <laughs> who told. We met a guy in BC who was like, "Oh yeah, we." I knew one of the guys that was catching them. I knew the trapper, and he said he'd go in there and pick out the meanest, nastiest <laughs> ones and send them down to Wyoming. But anyway, well, they've, they've, been, not they've been efficient. Yeah, they've been effective wolves. So uh, yeah, so. So, re- right. or, I, so I was messing we'll up re- reintroduction or introduction. We'll let's just let's just say in, let's just say reintroduced. We'll go with reintroduced. It's it's all the same. It's all the same species yeah. in a, in a in a uh, Linna- in Linnaean terms. Yeah, yeah. It's so all the same species. Reintroduced in 1995 and uh, so, 96, something like 32 or 34 total wolves. Yeah. Now, hope, but just to get the full story. Sure. Where was the state of Wyoming on that? That's an interesting one because obviously for the years leading up to that, uh, Wyoming didn't want to see wolves come back into the state. Mm-hmm. But it got to a point where uh, we saw the writing on the wall. It's, this was going to happen. So we negotiated what's called a 10J rule, Yep. So, and it, which under the Endangered Species Act, 10J is an experimental but non-essential population. So theoretically, uh, you can put them in there, the overall population if you take those wolves out that you put in there it's not going to have an effect on the overall population yep. and so it's experimental non-essential uh and and by getting that designation we said okay as long as they're experimental non-essential you know we'll take these wolves didn't because it gives them, you some but, more latitude it gives you some more latitude with like lethal control and things if you need right to, right you know. so it gives you more regulatory flexibility can so I, can I, can I, i'm gonna interrupt yeah. you too. No, I'm i just want to make sure this. people are following all this <laughs> yeah for it's sure. complicated yeah I'm gonna try. I'm gonna limit my interruptions, but I just wanted to paint one quick picture for you. Now, there was a period of time when, in the Bitterroots, the Bitterroot Range, people were like they were talking about in, reintroducing some grizzlies in the Bitterroot Range, and it would have carried the reintroduction would have carried it with it that 10J status, or you could have waited for the inevitable, which is one was going to show up there on its own. If it did, it would have a whole different status. That's right. Because it wandered in there on its own. And I remember thinking that the people who were uneasy with grizzlies, I was like, you ought to make a deal with the devil and go with the 10J, go with the inter- go with the ones that were put in there mechanically because you're going to have a little more leeway because eventually they're going to get in there anyway and then you're going to not have any leeway. That's right. And the flip side is if, if they leave the 10J area, uh, they take on... The, the threatened status. Oh, they do? Yeah. Oh, okay. So so you have a, a designated area. So it works both ways. You have this designated 10J population and boundaries for the 10J area. So Wyoming said, okay, uncle, do it. Right. So we have them. Uh, 95, uh, 96, they're reintroduced. We have wolves. Uh, since that time, over the course of the last 20 years or so, uh, we have managed that population uh, to the point that, oh, it was 12, 13 years ago that we met all of the recovery criteria. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said, for purposes of delisting, you need to do, you need to meet X, Y, and Z. You need to and they set these when? Uh, at the time of the reintroduction. Yeah, yeah, and they worked with the states on that. So set up these, uh, this framework for, okay, if you get to this point, uh, we'll start the delisting process. So we met that 12, 13 years ago. 
And I, I, you'll, you'll ask me what were those numbers, and I can't remember the specific numbers, but it was somewhere around 100, well, it was maybe even less than that, 100 wolves outside of, uh, I think it was less, outside of Yellowstone National Park. Outside of the outside park. Outside of the park. So, so the they, park, cut, they cut 32 loose inside the park. They did. And then yeah. we had a requirement for what the management had to be outside of the park. Uh, and the Wind River Indian Reservation is up there, and so those wolves don't count towards our obligations as a state to meet these recovery criteria. So this 100 wolves was like gradual spillover. Right, leaving, from the population that was introduced in Yellowstone. I would not call it gradual. I would call it almost instantaneous. Instantaneous <laughs> I mean, spillover. We, so now today, we have almost 400 wolves uh, in, in Wyoming, not just outside the park. That's counting the park and everything. But like you've hit four times recovery objective. We've, we've, yeah, we're way over recovery objective. The Fish and Wildlife Service has tried to delist wolves Oh, in Wyoming, it, at least a couple of times. Um, we've been in five different lawsuits. And I'll point out, that's the feds. Yeah, that's the not... The people that ran the introduction. That's right. It's not, it's not the state. I mean, the state's been pushing for, for delisting. But the federal government, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, actually wrote two rules to delist wolves in Wyoming. And, the, and other states, too. Montana, like them saying, well. hey, the wolves we put in there have got to the point where we wanted them to get. We will now... Turn them back to the state to manage. Yeah. So, can you explain why people can hunt them in Idaho? Oh, that's way down the road. Well, yeah. You're hearing the voice of Brody. <laughs> yeah. Brody, give your, give your little bio real quick. Fishing uh, guide. Fishing guide, meat eater, production assistant, general pain in the ass. Yeah, general guy. <laughs> right. but I, yeah, I want to get to that real but bad. I have a question I think that's relevant right now is what uh, the, the goal all along was to get them off of the list. That's right. Right. And when it's time to get them off the list, why would, like, Wyoming be pushing for it and why would the feds be pushing for it if they even were pushing for it? Like, what do they get out of it if, if like, they say, please do this, let's do this, and it does happen? So the, the states get something, the feds get something. So the states get ownership and, you know, get management of their wildlife back, the ability to make management decisions and, and deal with, uh, you know, they can have hunting seasons, they can uh, deal with damage problems, wolves killing livestock, you know, that sort of thing. The federal so it's government, mostly just like the ownership then of the regulation. It's, and, it's and, their and the wildlife, right? And, and it's the our wildlife. Yeah, the state already the manages all the wildlife anyways. Right, yeah. right. And so from the federal government standpoint, it's an opportunity to say, Here's an example where the Endangered Species Act worked. You know, we, we had a listed species. We recovered that species. We got them off the list. We can move to the next thing and do it. See, the Endangered Species Act works. So that's what the federal government gets out of it. Plus, they get out of the management. I mean, they, get the, they can move on to other things, and their money doesn't have to go. Free up those dollars. Free up right. those dollars, that personnel, you know, all, yeah, all that stuff. Because uh, Nixon... Signed the Endangered Species Act in the law in 1970. 73, yeah. They've listed about 2,000 species. Over that, yeah, about 2,300 now. And I think they've... Now, species get off the list in a handful of ways that they don't want to get off, where they realize they're extinct. Yeah, that's 10. Or they realize that they messed up the count and found populations that they didn't know about. Yeah, 19. Like, thought, oh, they're not, they're not endangered. You got the numbers good. Yeah, yeah. Or you're reco- making them up. Or you actually recover them. And how many have recovered out of 2,000, 2,300? Uh, roughly 34, maybe 36. Have been recovered. Yeah. So there's a lot of work to be done. Although, I, I'd, I'd argue, you know, 34 to 36 that have come off the list due to recovery. There are other species on that list that have recovered. Wolves in Wyoming. Yeah, and an that's what I was, Grizzly that's what bears I was are another at. example. I mean, yeah. we, we just talked to a guy that works on caribou in the lower 48, and there's about 15. Right. So here we are. 
you got 400 wolves in Wyoming. I don't know, you know, at, at the point we left off, you wound up with 400. Right, right. That's, I mean, that's where we are today. You know, and, and so I was telling you, we, we've now had, I think, five different lawsuits since 2004 uh, challenging the Fish and Wildlife Service's attempts at delisting wolves in Wyoming. And we've been through, so we've been through multiple rounds. And, and in one of them, and this will get to your question about, uh, you know, about Idaho and Montana. So in one of them, we have, and this is a big controversy, but in Wyoming, we put together a wolf management plan. You know, and, and all the states had to put together before there was delisting. All the states being Idaho, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Right. Had to put together a uh, wolf management plan that said, once wolves are delisted, here's what we will do. And it needed to be endorsed by the Fish and Wildlife Service for the, the service to be able to move forward. And we had some lawsuits over our plan. The service wasn't liking our plan. But ultimately, we had a court say it was fine. The, the what was biggest the, what was the basic up, argument? The biggest hang-up in our plan was we, we created a dual classification for wolves. So... In northwest Wyoming, where most of the wolves, well, where all of our wolves are, we called them trophy game, which in Wyoming uh, is limited to things like grizzly bears, uh, wolves, um, black bears, mountain lions. Uh, they have a certain, uh, there's a, there's, there's certain thresholds to be able to hunt them. Scary uh, game. Scare, yeah. The, <laughs> if it's a car, no, if, like if it's a carnivore, big horns are in there, right? No, big horns are just a game animal. Oh, okay. Big, just a big game animal. Scary. So tro- trophy game is treated a little different, and they have you know different quotas that they've set up, and they manage them a little different. So okay. it, it's more heavily regulated, and so that's how they were classified there. In the rest of the state, outside of this trophy game area, we classified wolves as predators, and in Wyoming, like coyotes, like coyotes. In Wyoming, predators. You don't need a license. It's open season. Um, you know, no license, no season. You go out and shoot as many wolves as you see in the predator zone. And that was a And that didn't big, fly with the feds. They didn't like it, but we did have a federal judge say, look, the, the objective here is to recover wolves. The plan that Wyoming's written still meets the requirements for having a recovered wolf population, and they just have a different way of doing business than Idaho and Montana. Um, so, so they move forward with a delisting rule, with that management plan. Well, a, a different federal judge didn't much care for, uh, for a management plan. Uh, and so the, what ended up happening, I guess, is that the, the service wound up moving forward with trying to delist just in Idaho and Montana because there were problems with our plan. And uh, in Idaho and Montana, um, well, th- that went to litigation as well. And the court there said, uh, you cannot delist in just those two states you know they they tried to create what was called a distinct population segment uh which is another provision under the endangered species act to delist these wolves uh that didn't include wyoming and they said you cannot write you cannot draw the judge said you cannot draw a dps distinct population segment on political boundaries yeah it has to be biological boundaries these wolves are moving across state lines and so that's when Congress got involved. Uh, so they struck down, uh, the judge struck down the rule to delist in Montana and Idaho, and Congress got involved and reinstated that rule and made it uh, litigation-proof. So put the rule back in place, litigation-proof. They be- that rule then meant those wolves in Montana and Idaho were delisted. The ones in Wyoming stayed on. We got another rule to delist in Wyoming in 2012. The service put forward another rule to delist in 2012. We actually had management authority for two years 
uh, at that point. And you guys ran two wolf seasons. We did. And actually, in, at least in our first wolf season, we never actually met our quota. Turns out wolves get really smart after being shot at for a day or two. And they get real hard to find. What was the quota? <clears throat> oh, I think the total quota, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw a number out there because I'm not going to get it spot on, but around 50. Uh, and I think we missed that by 10 or so or 15 uh, in that first year. Second year, I don't think we hit the quota either. And then the court came out and uh, vacated that rule, and they went back on the list again. And actually last Friday... Uh, we have the, the Fish and Wildlife Service appealed that decision, uh, and last Friday we had arguments on that in D.C. And it was kind of funny the the judge in that uh, not funny in a haha way, but the the judge in that in that district court case in D.C. didn't argue <clears throat> that the uh, that wolves had actually recovered. Said I'm not going to I'm not going to dispute uh, the service's decision or determination that wolves in Wyoming have recovered. Uh, her biggest problem was that our wolf management plan wasn't. It wasn't adopted in regulation or statute, and so it wasn't. It didn't have. We made all these promises that she felt like we could just break uh, to maintain our wolf populations. Of course, in Wyoming, we say we don't want to go through the last twenty years again. <laughs> like <laughs> you know? realistic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, I mean, we're going to be pretty conservative, and we're going to manage these wolves, and we're going to have wolves well into the future because we don't want to go through what we've had to go through the past 20 years and it's possible that it could happen <laughs> oh yeah i mean like it's like there's nothing preventing relisting from happening well ex- except having enough wolves no i mean you know i'm saying <laughs> like in a legal way if all of a sudden no the they were all works. gone they just get relisted right oh yeah or not I mean, they were all gone if they hit if they got below a threshold well if the population started cratering yeah there's two ways i mean the the service could look at it themselves and say you know, Wyoming, you're not doing a good job. The population's cratered. We're ha- we're we're going to have to do it ourselves and uh, relist ourselves. Or, uh, you know, somebody, anybody could file a petition uh, with the Fish and Wildlife Service and say, you relist these wolves. They're struggling. Um, we don't think that that's going to happen. I mean, we we think we proved in the two years we managed the wolf the, the wolf population in Wyoming remains strong and way over objective. Uh, so so who has ma- like what's going on in Montana and Idaho right now? They have, Montana and Idaho, they're managing wolves. They, it's the states of, they're, they're state animals now. They're the state wolves. But well, you guys have not gotten it back. We have not gotten but it back why, But why won't We're you? We're stubborn. But why not capitulate? What's the argument for just saying like, okay, what is the plan they have? How did they get management? Why don't we mirror that plan and get management? Every state's different. We have our own priorities, our so own political you're, realities. You're, you're taking a, your, your, pro, your approach is that you is like, no, that we're right. Answer. Oh, go ahead. I have the answer. Okay. Yeah. It, judge, if it's a goofy answer, don't tell me. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll tell you later then. Okay. Does it have anything to do with Montana and Idaho managing them as game animals that you got to buy tags for and Wyoming calling them predators and it's just a free-for-all? That, uh, that was ultimately the reason why... Uh, why Montana and Idaho got theirs and we didn't. So if Wyoming got control back, would they handle it more like Montana where you got to buy a tag and it's a game animal? And No, we, no. We, I mean, we have, we have a management plan. I mean, th- this dual classification system has been signed off on by right. a judge. You know, right now the problem is, do we have it, you know, are, are the commitments we've made to maintain a certain population are, are they that's sufficient? That. That, yeah, yeah. yeah that, oh, that's, so that's, that's where it still is at now. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like the argument whether it's said. whether it's been adopted into the sort of uh, rigid enough sense of the law 
can the states be trusted? I mean, that's so what it boils down to. Can the states be trusted to maintain to this me, population? This, this is coming control. right back around to the, company, the overarching issue. So you started with wolves, but when you look at these environmental laws, we just talked about wolves. In my opinion, you know, the same groups that sued Wyoming, you know, they were going to sue Wyoming no matter what. They just needed a, you know, they needed a reason to do that. Those guys, they don't want anybody hunting wolves. They don't want Montana and Idaho hunting wolves. They don't want anybody hunting bears. They don't want, you know, it's just, that's, that's not the priority. And so they don't want them hunting their favorite animals. No. And, and when you look at, so when you look at what, you know, it wasn't an issue of how many wolves there were, you know, it's an issue of hunting wolves. Yeah. And when you look at, you know, again, founda- foundational pieces of environmental law, these, these, these laws that came together where everybody said like, Hey, let's work together as a big team to protect this stuff. The Endangered Species Act, honestly, the Clean Water Act is so similar to it in how it kind of came about and works that it's, I mean, they're really, all these laws are very similar. But when you have, every, when you have a big group coming together saying, let's keep water clean, let's work as a team, let's save animals, let's work as a team, and you have, you know, there are some folks that that's, you know, they don't have the same, I mean, I think that these laws, I mean, we see people pushing against these laws and saying they don't work anymore. It's not that the laws don't work anymore. It's that, you know, we have to find a way to get back to the original intent of the laws, to get back to when, when Congress built them, what Congress had in mind, because that's how you get everybody on board rather than having the law become a tool for uh, a, a, a minority viewpoint, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that's a point I've made a handful of times when having this discussion is that people, I feel, have taken well-meaning laws like the Endangered Species Act, and sort of weaponize them, where you use it as a tool where you're not talking about what the intent of it is. You're talking about how you can use it as a way to, to pursue some goal. And I feel as though, I've said this many times, I feel as though you wind up uh, delegitimizing the act. Like if you say, it just pains me to think that someone would, would kill a grizzly bear. So in order to save grizzly bears, I will take something like the, the ESA and sue on grounds of how you're interpreting the ESA, when you're not really talking about the Endangered Species Act, you're not talking about the function of the Endangered Species Act, you're talking about that you don't want someone to kill bears, which would be, I would suggest in that case, you should pursue some whole other thing like um, my favorite animal act or America's most cuddly seeming animals act by which you could just pursue your goals in a way that you're, you're actually articulating what it is you're after. Rather than using it, you know, as a way it's not has has not intended to. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over 
to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know. They seem great to me. This is an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed you can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20-plus years. Decked is a game-changer. There's no more, like, leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck, out of the way, and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. You know, these are they're really challenging issues. But the reality is, and I think that this is where we have a great opportunity right now, I think people have seen, I think people are tired of, uh, they're tired of divisiveness. I think we've all seen issues out there where, you know, we've, we've seen how it doesn't work to just get on opposite sides of a table, put a problem in between us, and then just argue about who, whose fault it is. And I think, I honestly believe the majority of people now, we're, you know, we, you know, the pragmatic problem solvers, I think most of us are that. I think most people are that. And I think we have a unique opportunity with these, at this point in time, to get people who are like all these people sitting around this table now who just say, hey, you know what? Let's make everything work, you know, because these things are too important to fail at. You know, they're too important to fail at. And, and you see, you know, you know I, I'm, I'm a fan. I listen to a lot of your stuff. And, and I think, you know, pick the environmental law. Pick the issue. You're always going to be able to find whether it's on this side over here on the left side or that side over there on the right side. You're going to be able to find voices who are out there that are on those, those far, you know, opposite sides of an issue. And unfortunately, I think it's too easy right now to get on Facebook and become friends with people that only believe exactly what we believe, and then to believe that you know that that's exactly what you should be doing. When in reality, I think if we could all 
back away and look, uh, you know, and not demonize everybody's opinions or their point of view based on the outliers that are within their community. We find that we all actually do want the same thing still. We all want healthy wildlife populations. In Wyoming, you know, we believe we have the local knowledge and we've proven it to know how to manage those things correctly to keep them there. We all want clean water. You know, we, we all want fish in that clean water. Um, but you, you have to at some point step back and trust the people who are on the ground that have the local expertise and trust them with the ability to manage and ultimately get their buy-in, whether it's the private landowner buy-in or the local government buy-in, because it is the buy-in of those people living in those ecosystems with those issues. That's what ensures the success of that species. That's what ensures that that stream gets fixed. It's not a law. It's not a regulation. It's not people who write a check from someplace far away. It's people who want to come and fix the issues on the ground today and live with those issues and make sure that their kids, like my kids, you know, I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. Man, I, I'm going into the wilderness to hunt elk on Thursday. Yeah, where exactly are you going? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you. The wilderness. I'll tell you the, the exact coordinates. It's right next to Colorado, right, Dave? <laughs> okay, maybe I won't tell you. Now, how much do you guys, fo- how much do you guys follow the uh, wolf issue in other states? Uh, I follow, are you talking, you're going Western Great Lakes on me? I want to talk, well, yeah. I'm going to talk about Western Great Lakes, yeah. which is where I'm from, or when you say Northern Great Lakes, I, or the Mexican Gray Wolf. Like Mexican Gray Wolf. Yeah. Man, you listen, because this is an interesting story. answer this, man. But no, because this brings up a, a point you're talking about with, with state and federal stuff. So, the Mexican Gray Wolf, smaller than a Northern Gray Wolf. They used to range in New Mexico, Arizona, western Texas, northern Mexico. Uh, when extinct, or they got listed around the same time. Yeah, early se- uh, mid-70s. Okay. Then you wound up having, I, I would say that in a national sense, you had overwhelming public support for a reintroduction of the gray wolf. And under the idea that if you had a, a species, we have a species of wildlife that went extinct due to human causes. So we brought it to extinction. A lot of people feel that that would mean you have a moral obligation to correct, to right your wrong. If assuming that like the God given animals that live on the planet should be present. That's like a basic assumption. People said, if we accept that that's true, that we don't have the right to drive things to extinction. We needed to right the wrong. Overwhelming public support. Now, I would say generally, when it comes to the to, to Mexican gray wolf, you've had generally um, the states kind of dragging their heels about this. There's a recent fight going on where, not too long ago, they had some animals in there, and the feds had been doing reintroductions using uh with state permits so they would do reintroductions they would get state permits they weren't able to secure some state permits and went and dumped in a couple more wolves just on their own without state approval got a slap on the wrist about it all right but in a case like that wouldn't you say that the feds are sort of pursuing a national interest on federal property almost in conflict with people who have a local interest. But they, if you ask them, if you had the people acting on that behalf, they would say that, well, our mandate 
is to the people of the nation. So, but, but how do you feel like, how do you rectify those two things? Because on one hand, we, like, people generally want to accept like a local person, right? A local person has sort of a, you know, should be allowed like a reasonable amount of say in issues that affect his backyard. But we also have the bigger picture, meaning if I pollute a stream in my yard and I just say, but it's my stream, it's my property. Someone might say, but where does the water go? Right? It goes down into my place. So you're not just acting on your place, you're acting on everyone's place. Like in a case like that, when you look at be like, and, and personally, I support the idea that I think states do a good job of managing wildlife that's on the, in the here and now. States do a phenomenal job of managing wildlife on the ground that's right here. But what about these cases where overwhelmingly people want grizzly bears, they want wolves, and you have a state that kind of is, uh, is up front in the beginning of the process, not into the idea. Then all of a sudden they get there against that state's will. You can see how the, the, the feds would then say, I'm a little reluctant to hand this over to you because you guys didn't want this to happen. Do you remember? Like, how do you feel about that? Like that situation, where does the switch occur? Yeah. Where the state says, you're right. I didn't, but they're here now. And I promise. So, so that's where the, I think the endangered species act comes into play, right? Yeah. So, and that, I mean, that brings us back to wolves in Wyoming. I think that's where you're going, right? And it, well, in yeah, anything, we, yeah, wolves, in, wolves can, in New Mexico, yeah, Mexico, you know, you know, I don't Arizona. I probably won't talk about that too no, no, much. No, no, I, I, no but, I'm very comfortable with the micro with yeah, the, with but the, it's an analogy, yeah. right? And and so in Wyoming, yeah, we we very clearly didn't want them, uh, but because of what because of what reasons? Just be just be frank. I mean, because you have a huge like you guys have what, well, what percentage of your industry is livestock? Well, it's our third largest industry in the state behind uh, energy and tourism and then agriculture. And so, yeah, there are a lot of grazing allotments up in the National Forest in northwest Wyoming. Uh, it's also the uh, impacts to sportsmen, you know, especially you know, on large ungulates, so elk, moose, deer hunters. That's a primary food source for wolves. And so there was a lot of fear, and it turns out some rightful fear in what, what – bringing wolves back into northwest Wyoming might do to some of those ungulate populations. Yeah, man. They, I mean, how many you got? 400, 400 outside the park? Yeah. They eat seven pounds of meat a day. Well, yeah, 400 so, counting the park. Yeah. That counts the park. Yeah, but, but, yeah. I mean, they eat seven pounds of meat a day, so, I mean, that stuff adds I mean, you've, up. You've yeah. seen this, right? You hunt Montana. <laughs> yeah. The, the elk herd, I, I moved to Montana in 1997. The elk herd, my brother still hunts the same elk herd. He's hunting one-third the number of elk that he was hunting in 1997. It's been real interesting living in northern Colorado, watching what's happened up there, because pretty much everyone in northern Colorado has a wolf story. Who knows if they're there or not? But, but <laughs> yeah. You, you guys want us to, to no, have no, Colorado, But it's been interesting to watch, because Colorado just wrote a preemptive wolf management plan based on the Mexican gray wolf and based on what's happened up here and the gist of the plan was is we don't want we will absolutely not put up with any kind of reintroduction program if they make it here naturally so be it but we do not want wolves reintroduced in colorado and that and that wolf management program as far as i know was approved and it's so it's 
a lot of it, I think, was politically driven, just seeing kind of the shitstorm that revolves around wolves. But, you know... Because they're worried about the, the uh, economy, I want, are the they economy down of Elkhorn. Tell me, are they down there? Are they da- there have been confirmed sightings I know in Colorado. Been, yeah. yeah, no, they've there have been wolves in Colorado. Are they? Have they set up packs? I don't know right. the answer to that. Right. Uh, so the reluctance, but, livestock, what it's going to do to large ungulates. And, and then I think, you know, just to be frank, having the federal government yeah. force something it's on a, you. It's a trust issue. I mean, at, at the heart of it, it's a trust issue where, you know, I, I've got a great friend who's uh, got a big ranch up, uh, you know, right outside the thoroughfare in Wyoming. And just beautiful place. Uh, go hunt there, everyone. Um, actually, don't go hunt there. Go hunt someplace else. But that's because Nephi will be there next week. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, beautiful area. But, I mean, you, know, you talk to this guy, and, you know, he lives with these predators in his backyard every day. And his number one goal, you know what it is? Make sure that ranch gets passed down to his kids. It's to keep his lifestyle going. So we kind of demonize these folks, and the reality is, you know, these honestly, these guys, it's, it doesn't matter whether they're raising cows or whether they're raising horses or whether they're raising bears. The fact is, if you let them keep their lifestyle going, you let them keep that place economically viable. I mean, that's what's important to them. You know, it's not they're not out there, you know, trying to make biological decisions for everybody. They just don't want somebody to come in and, and honestly ruin their life. And I've got a good friend who said, "Hey, look, I love fish. I love, you know, wildlife, and you know." This, between water and fish, I'm going to put some water from some water in my ditch so we always have fish. But don't make it between my life and the fish. You know, there's another value to that too, uh, and it's for wildlife habitat. Northwest Wyoming is a pretty popular place for people to move. You yeah, know, you know, Jackson Hole, so forth. These having these landowners that are able to continue their livelihood and pass their ranches down to future generations allows a buffer between you know the federal land, the wilderness areas, and your you know, highly fragmented you know, ranchette type of developments and communities. So you create this buffer habitat. So it's pretty important. And, and I think we recognize that. And you know, the other thing we've done for wolves uh, to help these landowners and, and to help this happen is you know, by state law, if, they can, if, if we can send somebody from our game and fish out and confirm that uh, their livestock has been killed by a wolf, we'll pay for it. Sportsmen are paying for it. Even though you don't have management. Even though we don't have management, we still compensate our landowners. You guys uh, put the bill for that? We foot the bill. Not the federal government. It's the states. Uh, we do it for grizzly bears. We do it for wolves. Um, and then we do it for other species too. Elk, you know, get into a haystack. We'll compensate the landowner for that. But when it's a wolf, I, why don't you guys just say, hey, it's not my problem? You know what? Because it is our problem still. No, it, yeah, it, no, I, the, the federal government is not going to come in and do it. It's admirable to do it, but I just wouldn't, I can't believe that it winds up being your financial responsibility. The federal government's not going to come in and do it. They don't have the money to run a wolf management program anyway. They definitely don't have the money to, to pay landowners for the type of damage. We're talking about you know million-dollar numbers a year in, I, uh, in damage a, that we're paying. That's a huge misconception, I think, that somehow because these laws exist that the federal government's coming with a checkbook and taking care of all these issues, whether it's on impaired streams, whether it's you know, wolf or bear, honestly, private landowners and states are the ones, they're paying to, to fix these issues. You know, that's where the majority of the money's coming from. I think that shows a commitment from Wyoming, too, to having the wolves on the landscape, is the fact that, you know, we're doing everything we can to make our landowners whole, uh, which in turn, you know, builds some, some goodwill and, and support, you know, at least some support for having wolves there from landowners if they know they're at least may, being made whole for their losses. Uh, you know, we've been doing this for years. We Grizzly bears last year, I think we spent uh, $1.2 million on damage claims. 
uh, on compensating landowners for losses to livestock from grizzly bears. We don't have management authority at all over grizzly bears, uh, but we're still paying for it. Uh, yeah. So, so, but, but I want to get back to one point. Yeah. Ron, what do you think about all this so far? Oh, hi, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. I just, uh, it, it drives me crazy. What does? The whole fact that the federal government tells the states what they could do. I don't. I just. Well, yeah, but what is that? How, how could that be true? It's true because it's in my head. It's true. I mean, but I mean, you know, but it's a, it's a state. It's a state of Wyoming. How does the federal government even mandate? Because we're in the United States of America. I know, but they put the wolves up in Yellowstone. Didn't they ever think about the fact that they were going to just migrate out of there? Yeah, I'm sure they knew what they were well, going to. No, somebody with a dream catcher <laughs> in the rearview mirror <laughs> thought it was a good idea. I, I hate wolves. I'm sorry. I'm a dog. Really? Guy. I'm a dog guy. But know? wolves are dogs. I know, but they kill dogs. And oh, no. come on, oh, they kill a lot of dogs. No, yeah, they, okay, yeah, they'll they kill do. some dogs. No, I'm saying, come on, about. I, I still think it's fair. Like that's it's fine. I still love you. I still love you. <laughs> I just think that's a wrong statement. Okay, I, I just wish we wouldn't have meddled with it in the first place. Wherever no. they'd be, they'd be. All right, I don't. You know, yeah. there's a, there's I don't a, hate them. There's okay, a lot of. They would have probably. Okay. They came into northern Montana. They would probably be down there anyway. I live in Michigan. We be, yeah, they would. They came into Michigan. They didn't get reintroduced into your home state. Now, your home state's Illinois. <laughs> okay. There was no reintroduction in Michigan. Right. There's no reintroduction in Minnesota. There's no reintroduction in Wisconsin. Why don't they came they, in on their own? Why are they only picking areas where the sportsmen use more ground and? There's less, I, and they're putting wolves Because those are areas that are suitable for wolves. Right. Because one of the things that makes them suitable for wolves is like they don't get in trouble every five minutes. It's like, so we're going to put something into this. Like, no one put it in there. They came well, in no. on their own. They were there. Yeah. They were there. Okay. If you looked at, at the time of, at the time of Columbus's arrival in the West Indies, wolves were everywhere. Right. And we they were in all the places we're discussing. They were extirpated. For good reason. I don't. I don't want to put a value judgment on it. At the time, for what seemed like a very good reason. Yeah. At the time, it seemed like a great reason. But I mean, people's mentalities shift over time. But yeah, at the time, it was like here's a thing that competes for my interests, and, yeah. and we, like all species, are, are a selfish species. So now, I think the the argument's focused on most places. You know, I, I made this point with grizzly bears. Grizzly bears were native from the Missouri, very roughly from the Missouri River to the Pacific Coast. No one's talking about that we need grizzlies in, in Golden City. Gate Park. Okay? Yeah. Well, yeah, but there's, if you're going to poll Americans or, or if you're going like, to get a bunch of ecologists together, they would say that the argument has, has found its way into talking about ways where you have what might be defined by some as suitable habitat. When they can come in and get a toehold on their own, which is what we're seeing with mountain lions that are pushing east. No one's doing mountain lion reintroductions. reintroductions. They're, they're, they're doing it on their own, okay, very effectively right now. Wolves in the northern Great Lakes did it on their own, just crossing the ice and came down from Ontario. Northern Montana the same way. Here, they, they, some people came in, and, and maybe they now regret it, but they came in and sort of ju- made a little jump yeah. and put them on a, on a little island of land. A not an island of land, but an island of land that 
people in the U.S. tend to, there's a thing I've identified recently as Yellowstone Syndrome. It's what happens when the only thing you know about wildlife comes from Yellowstone Park. When you went to Yellowstone with your mom and dad or shit you watched, it was filmed in Yellowstone. And that's your entire idea of wilderness and wildlife. You know, the governor, you know, one of his statements he always says, it's not that we don't like these things, but we are not a zoo. We live here. Yeah. And I think that for us, you know, it, I mean, it comes back, to, there's a misconception that, again, that, that states somehow, if you, you know, hand these animals over to states, it's all going to happen all over again. They're going to be gone. That's just not true. It's not, it's not true because you would be, because the, the, the hammer is over your head. You know, I, I think that... There, I know you probably don't like that, and that's not the, I don't really like the way I put it, but that's a factor, right? It, it is. No, no, the, I mean... The Endangered Species Act does some good things. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and argue that it's not maybe the most impactful federal law from a species protection standpoint out there. Uh, it, no, I think there's a really it, strong case I, to be made that, it, that it's not working that well. Right. No, it's it's not. It's not. You know, I, I like to, I, I always like to tell people, I think the Endangered Species Act is, you know, think of it as a nice new car that you bought, you know, in 1973, and, it, it, it's, <laughs> you know, and, and you loved it, and, and you treated it treated it well for a little while and then you started neglecting it uh, and then it went through this horrible hailstorm. so all the parts are the same but it's it's been kind of messed up and it and it needs a little bit of work because i mean frankly the the, the hammer's not it, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have uh to have at least uh, I, I don't want to use the word hammer but you have the esa out there so it's a it's a motivator yeah you know esa is kind of a motivator you want to do the right thing anyway the esa is a motivator to make sure you do the right thing because from a state's right standpoint you don't want them to go back on the list um and, and frankly right now that the with the way the esa works when things go on the list they just don't come off and so that's a pretty good that's a pretty good motivator to not want anything that you don't have on the list right now to get there, which is why we were so proactive with sage grouse, for yeah. example, and why the midwestern states were so proactive with lesser prairie chicken. Um, and you're seeing a lot more proactive voluntary conservation efforts all over the country, and particularly in the West, for species that aren't even listed yet to keep them from getting there. But we still have the problem of how do we get things like wolves and bears off the list. When they've so obviously met these recovery criteria, you know, how do we get them off the list? How do we get them back to state control? And I think one of the biggest hurdles right now is you have, instead of, instead of the ESA being interpreted uh, biologically, it's being interpreted socially. Yeah. And emotionally. And emotionally. Yeah, that's right. And you have a lot of judges now uh, that, that pull those social uh, impacts or social thoughts into their decision making on what are really what really should be biological questions biologically wolves have recovered in wyoming biologically grizzly bears have recovered in wyoming socially taking those off the list is is frankly very unpopular outside of the inner inner rocky mountain west is it oh yeah especially with grizzly bears there's outside of the west there's there is not a lot of support uh, for delisting grizzly bears because of exactly what you said, these, this Yellowstone syndrome. You know, people think of grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone area as the grizzly bears of Yellowstone. Exactly. Gold yeah. Gate Bridge. I mean, people, that's, you know, when you don't, again, it's, it's respecting the knowledge problem. Somebody who doesn't live in those, you know, in close proximity or, or immerse themselves frequently in that, just 
I mean, they really don't have a, a real idea of what it looks like. On no, the I don't know if they know they're in grizzly bear country. No, I mean, if they're in proper grizzly bear country. <laughs> but it makes them feel good. And I respect this. You know, somebody who lives in New York, you know, they want to feel like they want to feel like there's wild places that have bears someplace. And so hearing that somebody there. might take away, hearing somebody might take away a bear, I mean, they, I mean, you look outside, you know, I can imagine if, if I lived in D.C., there's nothing I'd want to do except escape every weekend to Wyoming so I could be in the mountains. You know, and people want to know that's there. And so they, they want that protected. But there's not a lot of, you know, I, I think we all need to, I think we'd all agree there needs to be respect for the knowledge problem, which is that when you are removed from that thing, you're not right there with it. You got to respect that the people who are on the ground, who are managing that every day, probably have a better idea than you, the best way to manage it. So if you give them guidance, and that's what the ESA is, that's what the Clean Water Act is, it's strong guidance, you got to step back and let them work with it. You got to trust them to do that. And the, the challenge now, I think, is that people aren't trusting states to make the final calls on those things. They're not trusting them to do the work that these acts allow them to do and put them in the position to be able to do. Instead, people who live 1,500 miles away, who don't open their window and see that stream every day or see that bear, they want to make the calls on what's occurring with those things at the end of the day, even though they don't really know. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Man, I just got a new truck. Before I even drove my new truck anywhere, I wasn't going to drive it anywhere until I put a deck system in it. That's, how, that's what a believer I am in decked. I always thought they were a great deal, but now they're even better because they have redesigned their drawer system in storage cases from the ground up. It's like, I didn't know there was a problem with them. I don't know, they seem great to me. It's just an improvement on perfection. The new system made in the USA... Gives you 10 to 30% bigger drawers to fit more gear. It's lockable and secure, right? Weatherproof storage for all your gear. You build it right into your truck bed. You still have a truck bed. You can put stuff on. The top deck of the new system has eight D-ring tie-downs integrated into the steel. So you have really burly anchor points to hook stuff down on your bed. So you got to slam on the brakes or take off real fast. Nothing shifts. And like I said, they're, they're, they're D-rings that lay real flat. Like you still slide stuff right across the deck. It doesn't catch on the D-rings. The D-rings are built in. The drawer system fits any truck or van on the road in the USA from the last 20 plus years. Deck is a game changer. There's no more like leaving stuff at home that you wish you had with you. The stuff I want in my truck is in my truck out of the way and secure. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. 
Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada, different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. The, the way, kind of my overall view on it, a couple of things. Like, I, I'm a firm believer in the scientific process. So I get a little bit uneasy when... Um, Things like what is a recovered species, what is an endangered species, becomes the falls under the purview of uh, just emotional decision making about what's my favorite animal or what animal do I like to look at the most? Because I think that we have had, if you look at the U.S. in terms of our total population, our GNP, everything, it's um it's kind of miraculous that we have the wildlife that we do. Like no one's no, no other country's managed to even come close to what we've managed. And the way we've done it is by managing through scientific, like scientific pursuits. Okay. We, we use biologists very well. We have systems in place by which we ascertain population levels, make decisions about what sort of harvest can be pulled from that in order to take into account everyone's needs from wildlife viewing to people who rely on wild meats for food to have, you know, to having like genetically viable populations. We've done a pretty fantastic job. I'm not saying when you compare it to like what your dream scenario is, but when you compare it to actual countries that are on the actual earth, no one comes close. Now, a big part of that recipe of success, recipe for success has been state management of wildlife. One could always go and look and look and say like, oh yeah, but wolves went, um, wolves went extinct. So, or wolves were extirpated from some of these states. So they haven't done a good job. But that problem was occurring before these places became a state. Allo Leopold has his, you know, has his famous epiphany that he, that he gives in San County Almanac, which occurs when he was down in, I believe, New Mexico, doing some wolf depredation. He was down in New Mexico, and New Mexico is a U.S. territory. Killing wolves for the federal government. So when we now look and want to blame states on past sins, we're oftentimes blaming, it'd be like me getting pissed at you about something your grandfather did. It's like a common thing that happens. The buffalo was driven to extinction when these were U.S. territories. It didn't happen under state management. So the idea of sort of like scientifically-based state wildlife management agencies, that came after the problems that these states are still trying to rectify. When we have had 
the federal government come in. And I would argue, different than some of the people in this room for sure, the same as some of the people in this room and different than some of them, I would argue that we do have an obligation, that, that, that it's a moral wrong to drive animals to extinction. At times, I think that the federal government has done, this is just me talking, not Nephi and Dave. At times, I think the federal government has done the kind of things that the federal government does well is stepping in with a lot of power and a lot of money and doing some big picture things to try to move things along. And I think that in some cases, they've done good things in terms of wildlife because I am the rare middle ground where I feel that we should have grizzly bears, we should have wolves, and they should be managed as a renewable resource by the states, which are, I might point out, the state of Wyoming is right now and has been very successfully managing white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, moose, black bears, mountain lions, bighorn sheep, mountain goats, I said mountain lions. Pronghorn. Said antelope, didn't I? Okay. You did? We're sage not tr- grouse. All right, you're sage grouse. We're not trying something new here. People who worry about stage management act like, oh my goodness, what's the state going to do? But it's like, they're already doing all of that. So it's not outlandish to act like that, that we would use this system that has served us very well in the modern age and not try to blame people on things that happened when they weren't even a state. You know who started all that? No, please tell me. States. States. So the very first game laws, you know, when you, had, when you were losing passenger pigeons, when you were losing bison, uh, when you were losing deer, uh, antelope, elk, it wasn't the federal government that came in and passed a bunch of game laws to, to build these populations back up. It's states. First, first white-tailed deer laws came, I think they were in uh, New York. Uh, you know, it, it was states responding to... You know, these types of activities that led to the development of the North American model you're talking about yeah. and, and led to the recovery of pronghorn from as few as 25,000 to now well over a million, I believe, uh, that we have in pronghorn. Same thing with elk. Uh, you, know, you just go down the list of the species. Or the that's local where- territorial government. There was a guy trying to ban dynamite fishing for trout in Montana before the B- Little Bighorn Massacre. Well, I should point out the Custer lived to be older than Laramie. <laughs> you know, I used to live right by fall? that battleground. Yeah. Custer hit 37. Laramie died at 36. Laramie may have died a better death. Oh, dude, <laughs> we don't know. We know what we happened, just, to, yeah. we know what happened yeah. to George Armstrong. Yeah. So, but that's my take on it. Is and it's like, it, I, I just feel like there's a mi- there's a misconception with people who live outside of wilderness state let's just say i don't know like states with a lot of wildlife wilderness states is that they want to look and be like like you you come from a state where everything's destroyed you know your your native wildlife is not intact it has no chance of even being attacked no one's even having a conversation about putting wolves back into maryland like it's not even on anyone's radar it can't even be approached conversationally. So, but you want to look and say that I wouldn't want that to happen here because you know. But out there, 
those people that still have intact megafauna and have all of their species running around, and in the case of Wyoming, that has like what is mathematically regarded as the most remote area in the lower 48 United States, and I'm giving a hint, Neef already named it. Just remember, if you want to hunt wilderness in Wyoming, you have to have a guide. Yeah. But if you're from out of state. If so. you call wilderness getting far away from the road, Wyoming has the biggest piece of wilderness in the lower 48. So why is the state villainized? If in the outside perspective as being they can't, oh, they're going to mess it up. It's like based compared to what? Compared to who? Well, and, and one other point. So we have, you, you mentioned before, 2,300 species on the endangered species list. Wyoming, this most you know, the state with all this wilderness in the remote, most remote place, I think of those 2,300, we have 12. And, and some of them are shared by other states. And some of them are plant species. And a couple of them we think are recovered in Chicago, <laughs> that we've been talking about should come yeah. off that list. Yeah. That's pretty solid. We have, what, the 10th largest state by area in the country, and we have 12. How and many does New York have? I couldn't tell you, but I can tell you Hawaii has almost 500. I can tell you California has 350, something like that. Uh, you know, those, those two states combined have something like a third of all listed species. Uh, Wyoming has 12. Uh, you, you go to places that, and that's it, an, I don't know, it's an aspect of this that boggles <laughs> my mind where you'd think that more people would look and be like, what are those boys doing? I mean, there's a lot of like, like economic factors that, but I don't want to simplify it. There's a ton of economic factors. But I also think that it's like, as far as finding a way, to balance human needs. And you guys have good spending on public schools relative to other states. I, I, I feel, I don't live in Wyoming, but I feel bad for, I feel bad for you guys on the grizzly issue. And I feel bad for you guys on the wolf issue. We appreciate that, but that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't change our Thank reality. Thank you for your sympathy. Yeah. yeah. But no, you're right. You're right. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it's a frustrating place to be, where we feel like we can we can point to example after example of example uh, of what we do right and how we do balance all of the competing needs in the state. And what happens? People come from all over the country and all over the world to view our wildlife. So our you know, tourism is our second largest industry, and they're not coming here to look at an oil rig or a coal mine. They're coming here because of our wildlife. Yet. Somehow we can't be trusted to manage two species of wildlife that we've shown. And for grizzly bear, for example, we've been the boots on the ground the past 40 years. It's been the state of Wyoming that's been leading the charge on recovering grizzly bears. Yet we're not trusted that we can then do it once they're delisted, that we'll continue uh, to manage these once they're delisted. It's it's a very frustrating thing uh, to, to have folks that don't live here that have never been here tell us what we are and are not capable of when they don't really understand what we do and what we've done. Yeah. Man. Nephi, you got any concluding thoughts? I just want to talk about Dave's rifle. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> Dave, Dave you're, you're, a, you're a hunting Luddite. Oh, yeah. Dave was saying if you wanted to get to a 400-yard shot, You'd have to add up how many of the last elk you <laughs> about, about probably probably four or five, maybe more. No, no, it was to get to a 100-yard shot. You'd have to add up uh, probably the last three elk I've killed uh, to get to a 100-yard This I, man 
like honestly, he deserves some kind of a trophy. So if people are out there, please, I mean, I'm not, I don't know whether you should idolize him or you know, but man, my goodness, this guy, his gun—he's shooting a gun he got when he's 14 years old. And while there's I won a certain- it in a raffle, actually, my dad <laughs> won it in a raffle and gave it to me. Still uh, shooting a hammy down. Oh yeah, yeah. Shoulder strap broke. I hold it together with a zip tie. I carry extras in my pack. So is it like, oh, but is this like, are you making a point I don't about know hunting or is it just like a general like life view you have about if it's like that you just have, you have respect for things that function and yeah, you, you know, don't like, it, you're it, not want, you don't want to take part in the disposable society. I don't know if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, I, I've killed a lot of animals with that gun and, and the other things that I use. Uh, I mean, I, I have a $70 scope on it. You don't need a scope when you're getting up, putting the rifle right in their side. His shoe's got a hole, and he's. Oh, and and I'm a little cheap. I'm a little cheap. That's the that might factor in. Okay, so is the hunting thing? If you had to just pick a word, (laughs) is the hunting thing like sort of a um like the hunting gear thing, reverence for sort of objects that are around in your life? You like to have continuity, or is it you you hate to spend money? So it's a combination of both. My wife would tell me it's the latter. Uh, Yeah, she'll tell you I'm the cheapest person she knows part of it is there's a sentimental attachment to some of the stuff i've got you know and it takes me back to when i was a kid hunting with my dad i still wear i got my dad bought me a vest when i started hunting in wyoming uh, an orange vest reversible you know so i can camo how old are you (laughs) yeah that's right yeah i'm 30 37 i'm 37 i i still wear that same vest uh zipper doesn't work uh (laughs) Oh, the zipper broke ten years ago. Uh, it's—I mean—it's all—it's sta- faded. It's—it's it's like a worn traffic cone instead of you know bright orange. Uh, Is that but, legal? I don't, I, Probably not. Yanni got reprimanded. Yanni yeah. got reprimanded. He got—he got reprimanded, not fined, but reprimanded for his orange being a little too old. What state were you in? I think Brody might have actually been with you. Remember right? in Wyoming, yeah. you just have to have store hat or his, It was his hat. His hat. The guy was like, you know, next year. Tell me what he said, Yanni. He's like, next year it might be too faded. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Word of, we might be talking to that guy soon, right? Um, a guy, there's a, there's a friend of mine, Robert Abernathy, he's a big turkey hunter, and he uses really old stuff. But it's kind of to him, it be, sort of became a, um, it, 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 it's large response to like disposable culture. It's like a, it's like a personal rebellion against this idea that that you just that you just need, you know. I don't have that problem, man. I'm like fixated. <laughs> I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I like checking stuff out. I, you know, I would love things. It, I, so I think it's because I'm so cheap. I would love if people would buy me a bunch of stuff. I'd this probably is... use it. But like my backpack, the the uh, pack I've used for the past ten years, it was my computer bag in law school. I just repurposed it. It's now, uh, it's now my hunting, my, my day pack. Live in this pack. <laughs> this is why. I, asked, oh yeah. This is asked if we hunt together. This is why it just doesn't work. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I, I saw I my. Why you don't hunt the with part them. that holds the laptop? I just that's where I put my knives and my. Uh, you know, saw I'm, and the, stuff. I'm the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, I don't have a lot of time to hunt. Pop with you at the gas station. <laughs> I, I, so I, I'll drink a, I'll drink a pop it. can. I'll refill it when it's done with a two liter bottle. Oh, I'm the cheapest guy you'll ever. Now, my, my friend is milk. I, I have a, I, I, I guess he's kind of a friend. I, there's a, there's a person I used to be friends with, and she married this dude named Chris. And I saw a hunting picture where Chris had really old, old, old hunting clothes on, and I 
because of my occupation and whatnot, I tend to have a lot of hunting clothes laying around. And I asked her, I said, hey, I, I noticed Chris's, you know, threads are looking a little thin. Would he, is he making a point or would he like me to send him over a box of duds? And she pointed out that he's making, she's not entirely sure what it is, but he's making some sort of point. Hey, this gets worse for Dave. I mean, this, the sad thing about Dave, this is a guy who's the lead attorney for Game and Fish, right? I mean, for years, he's on the, like, the team for Safari Club. His, where does your father-in-law work, Dave? Uh, he, uh, I won't go into that. I don't want to pimp product. But you know that point, that you know what that suggests to me? That he's harboring a drug and uh, alcohol and gambling problem, <laughs> and that's where all his money's gone. So that's your same vest? That, that's my vest. Slide through a couple of pictures there. You'll see me go. You'll see it go through time. Really? <laughs> see, you know, you know. Oh, you no, to, go, you gotta go the, the wrong, go the wrong, the wrong way. Go the other way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'll see some other pictures pop up. I think my concern is what's like. It, I, like I have tons of respect for the man's Span capacity the years, to hunt game. But he's going to teach some some, yeah, so keep some going. new hunters going to see this and think that's what you're supposed to do. You're going to have a lot of people out there with hypothermia. You're going to have. I like it though. <laughs> I must. Yeah, I can't say I'm going to start doing that, but I do appreciate it. <laughs> but I, I was hoping you were going to hit me some some real philosophical stuff. I got no. I'm just. I'm just. But this geez. man has a hole worn to the bottom but, of his shoe. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's. <laughs> It's true. It's true. But I mean, there is some philosophical, it, it, more sentimentality phil- philosophy. You know, it's you know a lot of the stuff that I hunt with is stuff that my dad gave me. Uh, you know, when I started hunting, and to the extent I can still use it, that means a lot because it makes me remember you yeah, know those man. moments and well, a gun, you know, yeah. But a, a vest, I have. I have a sentimental vest. Go. He, you know, had, he had the same vest. I want one that fits. <laughs> It fits. It fits. You still, no, you still have a boyish. You still have a boyish frame. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for that. I thought. <laughs> I thought about this a lot. A guy we work with, one of the camera guys we work with, is working on a totally unrelated project in Africa, and he comes out and hunts with us. So he also he's like in the jungle, having nothing to do with hunting at all, but he's filming in Africa, and some shots ring out in the in the brush. And he's like, oh, that's a familiar sound. And out of the woods steps a fella, hold in no shirt, pair of shorts, pair of flip-flops, a shotgun, no bag or back, I mean, forget a backpack, like nothing but a gun. And he's got a big brush buck over his shoulder. And I did look at that and I'm like, where have we gone? That this guy, he's got like a pocket full of shells and goes out and... I, I, and I'm just I, dripping with gear, right? And I, I'm like stepping back in time, <laughs> twenty years with my gear. But I get stuff every, you know, every year. We, can, you can do it both ways. So, now you're so more successful. comfortable than I am because I've taken it upon myself. But I think that's just really all. That's just all relative, man. <laughs> I feel like when you know when people say like, uh, oh, you know, um, mountain men were were so tough. I feel that. I, this is a theory of mine, a pet theory of mine. I feel like they were just about as comfortable as we are. Their, I feel like their perception of comfort, like at any given moment, their relative perception of comfort probably put their comfort right about where we think of our comfort. 
that's probably true. But I'll bet if I put on your rain gear, I'd be more comfortable in a rainstorm than when I wear my my <laughs> garbage never bag. Had, but you've only been wearing gar- <laughs> but because you've only been wearing garbage bags your whole life. You don't know. Now, if you took my stuff away from me and gave me your stuff, I'd be uncomfortable because relative to my normal understanding of what I feel like, right? I think I think that discomfort. Here's what I'm, I'm trying to say. I think that discomfort is always just sort of like, what's your baseline? Like, what are you, what what comfort are you used to, and where are you at compared to that? You know, if every day when you woke up, the first idea was hit your hand with a hammer, <laughs> right? Over time, your idea of how uncomfortable that is is going to slowly change. I don't know. You're going to wake up earlier. Nephi, did I ask your concluding thought? Uh, my concluding thought, Dave has an old gun. Real concluding thought, <laughs> yeah. every, every time I listen to Steve, he's talking about how he went to Montana so, to, to go to school so he could go uh, someplace where there's big game. I just want you to know, reminder, we are sitting at the highest altitude college football stadium in the nation. If you want a place to go to school where you can go out and hunt elk on the weekend, you need to consider the yeah, house. Listen, how it close was is just the nearest elk hunt. It spot? was just half a chance that I went there. Not not quite, but I didn't know one thing from the other. I was I had got accepted to I graduate school. I still want kids school. to make that same mistake, Steve. I got accepted I to graduate to school here. in Colorado, and I got accepted at CSU, and I got accepted to graduate school at University of Montana. And I had a full ride at Colorado, and I had to pay at University of Montana to take out loans. I was like clearly going to go where I had a full ride. I met my friend, the, the, a late buddy of mine, Eric Kern, in Bo Nicky's bar. Eric Kern had just come. He was doing his PhD program in Montana. We went at Bo Nicky's bar. I think it was right around the time that O.J. Simpson was, was driving his Bronco down the road with the helicopters over him and everything. It was right around then. It might have been that night. And he, he swayed me just based on his knowledge of hunting and fishing in southwest Montana compared to the hunting and fishing he was hearing about from his buddy in Colorado. So I'm like, you know what? That's all I needed to hear. I'm going to switch. And told him no, told turned down the thing there and went here. I now say, I used to always say like, I'll wind up back there. I now say, I will, I like if, when people go like, if you could move anywhere and you didn't have to deal with the things you need to deal with, work, family, um, I've now switched it where I say here. Oh, well, that's the right answer. You say Wyoming? That's, that's yeah. what I now think and say. So I, knowing that story and that Wyoming wasn't one of the two choices, just, you made but, the but absolute just, right it's one. It's totally arbitrary. As, totally arbitrary. Oh, no, but as a, as a University of Wyoming alumnus myself and, and CSU Colorado State is, a, uh, is a, uh, one of our principal rivals, I think you made the absolute oh, right call good. to go to Montana. Uh, <laughs> Rather than getting tangled up with your you principal don't wanna, You don't want to end up there. The better choice, obviously, would have been Wyoming. <laughs> Brody, but, you're a Ram, aren't you? you at, least, at least you got yourself a good education by going to Montana. I did. Yeah. I just not feel the Colorado love. <laughs> I, I never felt Colorado love from you. John Denver ruined it for me. I feel like John Denver ruined <laughs> you know, the whole I'll state. I'll tell you a John Denver story. I was working in Grand Teton National Park. And there's this place called Dornan's just north of Jackson on the border of Grand Teton Sounds National Park. Sounds like a great Park. place. And they used to have a hootenanny there. And John Denver showed up one time, just hammered and sang for the, the whole place. That's what happens in Wyoming. Magic long, happens Not the long before there. he wrecked his plane. Is that right? Yeah. 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 yeah, I don't have a lot of Colorado love. 
I've never felt it. Man. I'll tell you where it comes from. Um, this is one of the main things. The someone was explaining to me like the day that uh, sort of like the day that Denver and Fort Collins became one city became no the day that they all of a sudden <laughs> constituted like fifty one percent of the state's population. You lost fur bear management. Well, I, and, totally, I, and, I, and yeah. I, yeah, and I've always just had it's always just left such a bad taste. Also, in my the mouth. bear thing, the ref bear referendum. Yeah, it's like you have the people least likely to be dealing with critters. Um, it's a bit of a California feel. Yeah, mandating to the people most likely to be dealing with critters about how they should go about dealing with those critters. Can I just say how thankful I am for the companies like Magpul and Hi-Viz and Thunder Beast Arms who, who made the smart decision to move across the border to Wyoming. And for the rest of you who are still in Colorado, the doors are open. Really? Come on up, Why don't guys. you tell them to stay out? Oh, because you got to work for the state. <laughs> but I would, I, would say, <laughs> I would say that a state like Montana is in danger of the same thing. Oh, happening. yeah, it'll happen. In my lifetime. Yeah. I'll be talking about, oh, yeah, man, when I used to hang out in Montana. I remember when. No, it'll be, yeah, I think, cool. yeah, I think that, you know, Bozeman will become Denver. Yeah. Yeah. Is that your concluding thought? Yeah. I want more Colorado, more Colorado love from you. Especially I'll start liking them Especially more. in like a month and a half. Or if two. I have a good hunt down there. The last time I hunted in Colorado, um, my goodness. I think we that wasn't Colorado's fault. <laughs> Dude, that was not Colorado's fault at all. You can have a bad hunt anywhere. I don't know, man. Talk to you after this weekend. I think you're going to have a hard time here. Really? They're all great. Dave, concluding thoughts? Uh, you know what? Uh, you, one, one thing, I, maybe I have two. One, I really do want to thank the University of Wyoming for letting us use this place. Uh, just, oh, this uh, is the best location uh, we've ever... This is- it's... Uh, it's great. Uh, but second thing, I want to th- thank you, Steve, for uh, you know, that article you wrote in the New York Times and Grizzly Bears. Uh, you know, we needed a, a voice like that you know, to talk about you know, how important it is uh, to recognize that there are other people in this country yeah. uh, that are trying to manage species and that it can be done the right way and that we're doing it the right way. And I guess my take-home message is, I, I mean, I really think uh, – you know, states in the West are trying to do what, right by wildlife, uh, and in, you know, regardless of whether they're listed species or not. And uh, I'm just—it's it, a great place to be. And uh, you know, appreciate you having us here. And and thanks for taking up an interest in in some of these Wyoming issues because it's—they're becoming national issues. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. No, I'm watching you guys yeah. because I like to watch the states that have the most to lose when it comes to wildlife rather than the states that are sitting on something where they're never, I mean, it's just where it's unfathomable that they're ever going to put it back together again. This is where the, this is where the interesting stuff's taking place in my mind here in a handful of other places, not Colorado. But <laughs> <laughs> Yanni. I don't have a concluding thought. But I have a concluding question for you guys. Maybe you can make me feel better about it as a non-resident hunter that might want to come to. Oh yeah, yeah, Wyoming. Very good point. <laughs> yeah, Very okay. good point. What the hell? I, I won't even ask. You guys can just answer it. I know what the question is. Yeah, yeah, but what? Why? Why is it that way? What, what's the question? Oh, yeah, go crossing over wilderness. Don't you? Are you talking wilderness? Yeah, break, break it down. Break it down, Giannis. 
well, I don't know if I can break it down, but as far as I understand in Wyoming, to hunt wilderness as a non-resident for big game, all game? Yeah, hunt, 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 in, hunt, hunt wilderness. wilderness. Now, camp in wilderness? Even birds? You can camp. You're good. You can camp. Can't hunt. go hunt. Even upland birds. Can't, can't yeah, hunt. You have to be, have a registered guide or mm, uh, it doesn't friend. have to yeah it doesn't so you you have to have an outfitter guide or a wyoming resident uh resident go in guide, with you which Re- is just resident guide yeah guy from yeah. The state. that's something okay, a lot of people gotcha. don't understand if you got a buddy yeah you're good if you know dave alaska does and it, you don't yeah. mind hunting dark timber with no skulls <laughs> no 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 alaska <laughs> doesn't do that a, they have some species for some no. species they do. alaska has some species you have to have to be a guide or a relative Second right. degree so like grizzly bear or gotta have uh, a relative uh bighorn sheep right but you could doll sheep, doll yeah. sheep yeah doll you sheep. could take me hunting in a wilderness area. i as long as i don't charge because i'm not i'm not a licensed guide so i can't charge you for it but yeah i could no, take the you license is 1250 and he won't spend it alaska's first degree okay kin second degree second degree. yeah Sorry. wyoming doesn't have that requirement yeah you know here it's so you, you, know, you, I you can get you. around the whole thing not get around get around is the wrong way to put it if 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 you're with a Wyoming resident, you can hunt wilderness. Yeah, call Dave right. and have him go out with you. But I mean, that's all it takes. You're not you're not kidding me or something. No, no, you you gotta have a Wyoming resident, and you know they can't be you can't be charged. They can't be charging yeah. you as an outfit. But they can be hunting too, though. They can yeah. be hunting too. So it just yeah. be legitimately, you know, there's not guys not doing it for profit. But it's like but if you got a buddy that lives in Wyoming, you want to go hunt Wyoming. People do that all the hunt time. Their friend comes over and you want to. And take again, them that's out? just wilderness, right? And there are some fantastic areas here. Don't overlook for those of you who are looking at hunting in wyoming wyoming has wilderness like locations that are not wilderness so when you're looking at places like i don't want yeah to when you say wilderness is like capital w it has like to be designated federally, yeah yes. like federally yeah. recognized I mean, there wilderness. are a lot of there's a lot of general hunt areas here that are absolutely phenomenal and i don't want to tell you where they are but, it's but a, come it's find them all right it is it's and can you just explain maybe like what's the What's the thinking? Yeah. What you know? It without going into too much detail. It. I mean, it, it, it's pro. And I can't. I don't know the whole history of it. But my. This is my best guess. It's a way to uh, protect an industry. I see. The other to protect, issue, to, to, to protect outfitter jobs. And, yeah. and in all fairness, to the outfitters. The other issue too is like you know. Let's say I am going into, and I'm not going to the thoroughfare next week to hunt elk, but I'm going to another wilderness area. So honestly, those areas. You know, I'm going, I'm going 16 miles back up into a place where I literally am going to see a couple bears every day. And, you know, that's not a place to mess around with just, you know, driving up being like, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to wander up into the... Yeah, know. but but that, that that argument loses me because you could live on the Idaho side of the border and spend your whole life hunting in wilderness or in the backcountry in Idaho. And then the second you step in Wyoming, you're said you're not qualified. You got to have a... You gotta have a, a guide. So. There, are, there are gonna be exceptions. And to you've got people in Wyoming I mean, it's a, it's that have never. Yeah. yeah, but you'd have to give them some kind of test. I always thought, like in Alaska, the things you can't hunt without it, you have to have a relative or an outfitter, are the things that happen to be the things you could get yourself in most trouble in. Um, mountain goats, doll sheep, grizzly bears. Like the things you like the things people are most likely to get tore up doing. Um, you need to have that. I don't. I don't. I don't know that that's the case. It could be to protect outfitting jobs, but there's a hell of a lot of moose outfitters, and you can hunt moose without a guide. Yeah, but isn't there some? There's some. I've heard some rumors that in Alaska they're looking at that for moose. Oh, 
there's some big stuff happening. There's for, big implications for me because as a dude with a with a brother that lives in Alaska, um, there, you know, the other thing they're changing up is if I'm hunting with him on for for the things that I need that he needs to be there in order for me to hunt. It counts on his, my kill counts on his bag limit. So it used to be that we could go sheep hunt. We could go hunt doll sheep together. Now, if I kill one, that's his doll sheep. So that goes well, into effect between now and 2018. But if it's, but if you, so then if you hire a guide, it's it not his, it's yours. No, it's only when you're doing the first, it's only when you're doing the family hunt. So is that a, is that a protective law as well? Industry protection law? Uh, yeah. Danny was pointing out to me that there's a, that the, the, uh, the doll sheep take, you know, it's a finite resource. And the, the, the preponderance of doll sheep killed in Alaska are killed by non-residents. So they're, they're, they're doing some things to, um, you know, all states, just for, for listeners, you know, all states tend to, not tend to, all states are going to give priority to wildlife resources to residents. It's state managed, just stands the reason they're going to give preference to their own residents. Um, you know, sometimes like if you're going to hunt elk or let's say you're going to hunt whitetail deer in Michigan on a resident tag, you know, it's 12 bucks or whatever. You're going to hunt deer. There's a non-resident. You're going to pay $250. So you generally, for your people in your state, um, you give them a readier, less expensive access to renewable resources. And then people from out of state are going to pay a little more money and help bankroll the whole thing. It, it applies to the Lord place. Uh, it gets, it starts to seem most severe in destination states, you know, um, Colorado, Montana, well, you know, all the Western states, Alaska, like places where people want to dream of go hunt sometime. They're often have sticker shock because they've been buying resident licenses for their whole life. My, my brother in Alaska, you don't pay, you don't pay for tags for the most part in Alaska. Residents don't pay for tags. No, you buy a hunting yeah. license. It just comes with. Yeah. Comes they're with all doubling the all non-resident tag fees. I am going to disagree with Dave on this issue just because I honestly think, you know, if most people were like Giannis or like you, Steve, and they were coming here to hunt in the wilderness, it wouldn't be an issue. Right? You don't think so? No, but most people aren't. I mean, disagree with me on that one. Most guys who come out here for the first time and drive out from Wisconsin to go hunt elk, like, I'm not sure you want those guys first time, you know, in the wilderness with nothing but a topo map. And that's just, you know, this is all theory. I, you know, I feel like they can get the same amount of trouble, though. Anywhere. On some chunk of BLM. No, yeah, map. no. Yeah. A mile off right, the road. Let's move on. Um, no, before we move on, I want to make a point. Federally designated wilderness is one of those cases where I feel that the feds did what was right. Now, I, I don't know. We'll talk even, about this off You already there. had your last thought. Well, <laughs> I, I agree. This is not over, Steve. No, we'll talk, well, I, I would love to hear your take on it. I hate to drop a big bombshell on you like that no. after you had no, your thought to be I'll just, I'll, I'll just say, I'll, I'll just say, done correctly, you're right. But done correctly, you're right. Okay. Well, yeah, that's what I'd say too. Now that's where we might define that differently. But yeah, I think that we're on the same page. Was that your deal? You had a concluding question. So just to clarify, federally designated wilderness. State of Wyoming, you got to have a guy to be with a guy from Wyoming. Correct. And you guys have some serious backcountry wilderness. We have, yeah, we do. We've got some of the biggest in the country, at least in the lower 48. 
Ron, what's your concluding thought? You have an anti-fatterless rant? <laughs> no. Have you lost a dog to a wolf? Do you have any friends that have? I have had dog. I had acquaintances, not friends yeah. like you and me friends. Hunting snowshoe hares or what? Uh, beagles and coon dog guys. And and bear dog guys. Yeah. So here's my concluding thought. Do you I hate lo- cars? I love you. I guarantee they lost some dogs to cars. I love you. I hate bears. <laughs> I love dogs. Bears. Wait, I, I, I'm going down the whole line. I love you. I hate bears. I love dogs. I hate wolves. I love everybody here. And this has just been a, 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 a silly ass podcast because you're all on the same side. You need to get somebody on here from the other side. So, like, we should have been asking you more questions about hating <laughs> wolves and I bears. <laughs> because. <laughs> exactly, but you you have the no. only viewpoint here that I think is illegitimate. I, <laughs> Steve, I've known you since you were eighteen years old. You and I have never agreed on anything except we like arguing about stuff <laughs> forever. All right, that's fair. I, 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 I'm gonna in the future. I'm gonna invite you back on. I want you to do some preparation. I want you to come in. You know I and, don't prep and convince me. And convince me that we should hate bears. Not I shouldn't say bears. Yeah, wolves. Uh, and grizzly bears is the ones I'm scared of. Yeah. So it's, I, it's a I had two thing. black bears up on my porch up at the cabin this month, or last month with you. So I don't hate black bears. I'm not scared of them. Yeah, that's true. You did almost get, you had, we left I walked right up on my bottom of my sleeping bag. Yeah. <laughs> but no, grizzly bears, wolves, I don't like them. Sorry. I'm a dog guy, small game hunter. You know, here's my concluding thought. That wasn't it? No, I'm working in <laughs> it. Well, I haven't talked for an hour and a half. I take two beers. I can't smoke. And now, finally, I get a concluding thought. Not in here. You and now you want to cut me off. All right. I find, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, listen to your podcast, been listening to them for years. I got my own podcast. And I feel like they talk about the dividing line between high fence hunters and wild hunter, you know, wild game hunters and out east and out west. That, to me, is the biggest dividing line ever. West like and east. Western hunters versus eastern hunters. Yeah. When, when I hear the podcast from, uh, all I hear about is how big the rack was. What, what's your buddy with the podcast that in uh, Jay, the two guys? Jay and Dar? Jay and Dar. They literally just talk numbers on antlers. Yeah. Like, yeah, I saw a 390. It's about a 392 or 391. Do you want to eat this thing or just kill somebody with it? I, I think what happened when everybody moved west of the Mississippi, they lost their noodles, okay, and they got way too wrapped up in everything. We're back east. We just do the same thing we've been doing since we... That is such BS. Cut the trees down. It's such BS. <laughs> What? The whole QDMA thing is from the southeast. I don't pay attention, deer hunter. I'm a bird hunter. <laughs> Listen, if you think that wanting to shoot something big is a western invention, <laughs> no, dude, you, they're I, just bigger here. So no, you have just, no idea what you're talking about. Why, of course not. Yeah. you know that. Whenever you argue with me, that stuff can't, like the white the white tail deer world. You know what? And you know I'm not a part of it at all. Like zero. Okay. You know that. So all right. It, it's just weird. I I hear like so much like it's kind of like the people out west it's are kinda, obsessive about hunting. Yeah, like super obsessive. Other than 
Dave that doesn't spend any money on his clothes. I'm yeah, still but he's obsessive a about hunting. He's a hunting son of a gun. He's probably from Arkansas. His <laughs> <laughs> family is or something. Anyway, my concluding thought is uh, thanks for having me here, and let's go hunting tomorrow. Oh. No, we're going. Yeah, we're going hunting tomorrow. Yeah. Um, God, that's a whole other story. I'm going to save it. My concluding thought is it's been uh, thank you. Nephi Cole and Dave Wilms. It, 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 the, the little bit of time we've spent uh, having an opportunity to talk about the issues we've talked about and then that we've been able to share email correspondence, it really has, uh, it's really enhanced my understanding of wildlife issues in the U.S. I, I, I can't say like like in a blanket way. I can't say that we might agree on every single detail about stuff, but I really have appreciated watching and just the, the little bit I've seen in our discussions, watching in, in a real time way uh, how decisions about wildlife get made, how social perceptions are formed, and kind of the complexities of being the people and around the people who are, who actually have to make the compromises and forge the deals and have it be that you're looking out for wildlife at the same time. You're mindful of a constituency who needs to live here, make a living here, raise their children here. It's been interesting to see. Um, I really invite people to, to, uh, delve into some of the complexities because I think that you'll find uh, as you start to look at these issues that that there's no comfort in how easy the solution is. There's a tendency to want to find ways where you look and you be like, oh, it's simple. They want to do this or now they're going to do that. And when you look into what actually goes on in, in, in talking about these big emblematic things, wolves and grizzly bears and, and other things that it's a um it's a minefield and and the fact that you guys have uh in the state i feel like been in it in a way and dealing with some things that are impacting the rest of the country and trying to do it in, in a thoughtful way and from a position that i know personally comes from really admiring wildlife and wanting to be out among wildlife that you're like wildlife guys who spend your time out of doors appreciating and enjoying wildlife. Um, it's refreshing, man. It's great to see. And I, I, I trust that you have, you know, wisdom and, and, and good ideas going into the future. So thanks for coming on. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.
Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.